Well, thank you very much, uh, first of all, for your welcome. It's good to be here again. And uh, I'm a stranger to Offaly, really. I've been coming along to the church here in one of its meeting places or other uh, over the years. And uh, it's good to be here in this lovely building. Even listening again to that reading, uh, I find myself in real difficulty. And that's because I, I prepared a message and something I wanted to think on. But the, the chapter is just bristling with so much, it's almost like, oh, why didn't I think about that bit? Why didn't I look at that bit? But we've only got one slice of time, so we've got to do our best. Um, and uh, it's also uh, good to hear that hymn. I haven't heard that for a long time. In fact, I first heard it in Harrogate and uh, tried to introduce it in Brinkhouse. And somehow it never quite got off the ground, but it's lovely to hear it. It's so appropriate for this passage. So I trust the Lord will bless us and help us together as we think about this. Can I just read a few verses from chapter 25? A little bit of scene setting. Uh, verse 23. And uh, this is when, because Agrippa and Bernus are in the area, Festus wants to have a consultation because he, uh, has, he wants to have something to write to the emperor about. And uh, it just sets the scene a little bit. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernus came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about, the home, about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he'd done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And then he goes on to verse, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And uh, now the, the whole business of appealing to the emperor as a Roman citizen was a complex business. It's not just cut and dry. Uh, and there's some aspects of that that come out here. Uh, but I've entitled our meditation this morning The Happy Apologist. Uh, and that's for two reasons. Because the word apologist and happy are in the opening of the passage. Because the word defense there is apologia, the Greek word for a rational defense, originally a, 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 a defense in court, but it had the idea of a rational defense. And also when it says, I suppose translators have to, to express it a bit like this for us in English, I consider myself fortunate. The word is makarios, which is happy or blessed. And this is how Paul considered himself. He was happy, blessed. To give a defense uh, of the gospel that he preached and why he was in the circumstances he was in. Now, the credibility of Christianity has always uh, been under the spotlight. Not just now, not just a hundred years ago, but all the way through the centuries. And particularly in the first century in which it emerged. And we have to remember that. This is not uh, a sort of a Christian friendly environment. Which is a great help to us in our, in our day and in our circumstances. And so Paul had been arrested without proper reason. And so the governor wants a second opinion. 
And uh, just a little quote here which just sets the scene very well. Despite their interest in Paul's case and their apparent objectivity about his innocence, this compromised couple, that's Bernice and Agrippa, uh, and that's a, that's a shady business to go into that, must have been as disturbed as Felix was, that's the previous governor, uh, was to hear Paul's testimony and to be challenged by his gospel. If, however, Festus perceived that the debate was theological, not demanding a trial before the secular authorities, why did he not say so earlier and acquit Paul? This clearly exposes his political compromise with the Jews and his failure to act justly according to Roman standards. Festus hides the fact that he was actually, as it says in verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favour. So he's prejudiced from the very beginning of this uh, trial, although it's not technically a trial, it's a hearing. Anyway, the prisoner is very pleased to speak for himself. And I'm going to highlight some aspects of that. We've called him the happy apologist. And we ought to be, as Christians, happy apologists. We ought to be glad to to give a confession, to give a defence for our faith. Well, this is how one put it. Should a preacher be called to address kings, he could not follow a better model than the Apostle Paul whom we may fitly call the king of preachers and the preacher to kings. His speech is extremely forcible, yet exceedingly courteous. It is powerful in matter, but graceful in manner. It is bold, but remarkably unobtrusive, never cringing, but never impertinent. The line of argument was so suited to the prejudice and taste of Agrippa as to be another instance of Paul's power to become all things to all men. Well, let me give you five reasons why he was happy to give his defence. First of all, this king knew his subject. Well, I don't mean his subject in terms of his kingly subjects. I mean the subject that was being discussed. Agrippa knew this subject well, so therefore uh, Paul's very happy to speak to him, and he says so. And Herod Agrippa was the last ruler in the Herodian line. His father was Herod Agrippa I, who we read of in Acts 12, whose antagonism toward the church in Jerusalem was described in Acts 12. His grandfather was Herod the Great, the man connected with Bethlehem. So this Agrippa, Agrippa II, Agrippa II, sounds like a movie, uh, and he was an expert in Jewish customs and controversies, of which there were many. And the officials all present in this room uh, recognised that fact. And Paul the prisoner knew that Agrippa knew the subject. So you could not fool this man easily. This is the interesting thing here at this point. For Paul, he considered this a good thing. And that is because the Christian faith need never fear scrutiny at any level. That doesn't mean to say there are difficult questions. That doesn't mean to say there there can't be debate and discussion. But it does not need to fear scrutiny at the highest level. And I find that quite encouraging. So that's the first reason. Paul knew 
that the king knew the subject. Secondly, Paul knew that his accusers knew him. Now that's that little piece in the passage from verses 4 to 18 where he talks all about his well-known dramatic change. And of course he illustrates it. Often when people are sharing their story of how they became a Christian, they often begin by saying, oh, or say somewhere along the line, there was no flashing light. Well, there was a flashing light here in this instance. And, and, and Paul could talk about it. Uh, and people witnessed it, uh, and the situation was as it was. But it, he had undergone a dramatic change. If there had been a Jerusalem post, this would have been real headline stuff. The persecutor turns preacher. The destroyer of the church became one of its principal builders and strengtheners. The enemy of the church became its loyal friend. It's dramatic. And of course he shares that, and in the reading we we, we heard, uh, he talks all about those things. And when the Lord Jesus confronted him personally, and very directly, as he was on his mission of destruction. So his training, Paul talks about his training and his background, and he talks about his track record, um, and he talks about the complete turnaround, 180 degrees, from going in that direction to going in that direction. Somebody put it like this. Paul's audience of powerful Herodian and Roman officials would have been sympathetic to such violent ways in enforcing their own interests. You know when Paul's describing, and I, I, I was taking them off to prison and, and I opposed them violently, etc., etc. Paul is speaking their language here, but only to subvert it. For ultimately, Paul admits that his cruel and zealous pursuit of the early disciples sprang not from sober concerns for justice, but from maniacal paroxysms of rage. Now that's important because he's accused with madness. Paul is very, very astute in what he says. He's accused of madness, as we'll see in a moment. But actually what he's saying is that the way I treated these early Christians and the mission I was on... I was mad. I was in a rage of madness. And it was the whole path was a folly. And what did the whole thing uh, stand on? Well, it, it all had to do with whether or not the Lord Jesus was alive or dead. That's what the whole thing turned on. And that's what he talks about in that section. And uh, we'll come to one or two particular statements that he makes. But the thing is that Paul's happy to speak on this occasion because he knows that his accusers know him. He knows that the king knows the subject. So he's got nothing to fear with regard to that. But then reason number three. For Paul, it was a pleasure and a privilege and indeed a priority to tell the story like it was. Now, this is how he works through this. He could not be disobedient to what had happened to him. We just pick it up in verse 19. As I say, we just can't go through every single aspect of this. It's a rich chapter. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. 
So he couldn't be disobedient to this now. God had called him. Jesus had confronted him. And life was going to be different. And then in verse 20, he says, But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. He preached from personal knowledge now. He was a man who had felt the weight of his own sin and guilt, which probably began really stirring up when he was present at the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And also he says that, uh, verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So even attempts on his life would not stop him taking this gospel out, preaching it to all in whatever situation he found himself. And of course, verse 22, So this day I have had, I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So he had known the protection hand of God, the protecting hand of God. And the prophets were behind him. The Old Testament was behind him. This was really important for a lot of the people present in the room, including Agrippa, who was well aware of these things, that, 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 that what his message was actually rooted in the Old Testament. And these people allegedly were very passionate about the Old Testament. And they recognized the Old Testament. And then what does he say in verse 23? That the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer. And that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, a lot of people there think his message is OTT. Well, actually, you just need to strike a T off. It's OT. It's Old Testament, not over the top. This is what he was talking about. And he was emphasizing that. And again, somebody put it like this. Paul is probably also appealing to Gentiles in the audience, saying, in effect, once admit there is an all-powerful God, why should anyone find the idea of the resurrection incredible? Which, of course, he says specifically. And as such, it is a preliminary challenging to Festus and Agrippa and the others personally about Jesus and the resurrection. Do you see what's happening here? Paul, the prisoner, is on trial. He's, he's subject to a hearing, but he's turning the whole thing around. And he's declaring the gospel. So that was reason number three. It was a pleasure. It was a, a privilege. It was a priority to share his message. And he knew that his accusers knew him, and he knew that the king knew his subject. Reason number four. Paul knew the ground on which he stood. Let me just read verses 24, 5 and 6. And as he was saying these things in his defence, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Now, learn from this. It is possible for you to speak as a Christian in a whole variety of situations, with boldness and yet with courtesy. 
And you have grounds for what you say and what you speak and who you are. And, and I think that's really important in the day and age in which we live, when there's so much scrutiny. And it seems to be coming harder to speak up. And yet there are times when we can speak up in the right way. And uh, Festus thinks Paul is flipped. Now, I don't know whether he literally means you're becoming seen. You know, we, we sometimes say to people, you're mad. We don't literally mean they're becoming seen. But maybe he did. Maybe he did think he was, he was literally. Uh, as somebody put it like, Paul has already declared that he was truly maniacal when expressing uncontrolled rage against the early disciples, which suggests that the terminology may be used similarly in a negative sense in verses 24 and 25. It's very interesting that, that there's this kind of play on words here. And in contrast with his pre-Christian behavior, his words set forth truth, and they are controlled by sober judgment. I find this whole thing fascinating and enriching. I would love to have heard him. This is, has to be, and we all have, I, I suppose, favourite moments in the Bible, if we're Bible readers. And uh, verse 25 is one of my favourites. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. I mean, can you imagine You've got to you've got to think about the scene. All these dignitaries, and and there's great pomp, and everybody's dressed up, and uh, they're all they're full of they're oozing with authority and significance, and they have real power. And Paul just calmly tells them he's speaking the truth, and in their consciences and in their hearts, they feel the force of truth. Truth has a force. And this had the powerful ring of truth. The king knew his facts. This has been out in the open for some years now. I don't know if you realise, but the book of Acts covers roughly a 30 year period after the resurrection. And of course the king actually says this. Well, Paul says, for the king knows about these things. To him I may speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Now this is really important in the day and age in which we live. Do not forget the historical roots of your faith. This is really important for Christians. We are not to be detached from the ages, the progress of the church through the centuries, with all her woes and problems. This is something we have to understand. Now, make no mistake, we can't reason somebody to become a Christian, literally. No, we cannot. You cannot just, it's not just a matter of reason. In many ways, it transcends reason. It is never irrational. And the Holy Spirit can come and give weight to the truth of the gospel as we are brought to an understanding of it. Perhaps I can just share for a moment. Um, it's appropriate because it'll be, where are we, March, April, May, the 12th of May, 1973. So that's 50 years ago. That's when I became a Christian. I knew about the gospel from being a child. You can't be brought up in East Belfast and not know the gospel. It's an impossibility. At least it was when I was a child. But I didn't embrace it through my teenage years 
until nearly 19 years of age, I was given a copy of John's Gospel. I met some Christians in the open air in Leeds. And I remember reading it. It's 21 chapters. I read three chapters a day. Through the course of the week. And I was persuaded. I was. I, I felt that the Lord was confronting me. Of a person of no significance whatsoever. And the Lord graciously spoke to me. And the, and the ring of truth was as I read that patiently and, and, and uh, thoughtfully through that week it was very powerful I love how somebody put it Christianity cannot simply be dismissed as the product of one man's madness Agrippa II uh, uh, he maintained a continuing interest in what was taking place in Jewish affairs there is therefore no reason why he should not have heard of the origins of Christianity Especially if Christians felt that were felt to be a disturbing factor in Jewish life. He knew the situation. And here's Paul in front of him, speaking with such clarity and truth. <coughs> Paul could not be more sure, more composed, more clear, and his life, his words were solid. Uh, the facts were on his side, truth was on his side, and he just spoke the truth. Now I'm not the Apostle Paul, which you already know, um, in all sorts of ways, but listen, if there's anyone here thinking about these things, exploring what it is to be a Christian, finding out maybe what this church is about, let me reassure you that the more you investigate the Bible, the more you will discover its truth. Now I can say that because for 50 years, yes, there's been the old day when I haven't read my Bible. I don't keep a record of that. But most days, I read the Bible. And I can honestly say that it, is, it continues to be enriching, and profitable, and helpful. And I find that the connections between it, this past week I've been reading in the book of Ezekiel, not the easiest of reading, but it has been wonderful. Take up the Bible and read. That would be my earnest uh, call to you this morning. Interesting little note here. Paul, like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, was exonerated by Roman justice three times. Very interesting little observation that he was in that position as he served his Lord. Reason number five. Paul was happy to make it personal to the king. Verse 27. Very interesting this. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He asks a direct question and then he even answers the question. So confident is he on what this man really thinks. He dares to do that. Verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? One of the few words, I think it's four times in the New Testament the word Christian appears. Would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Agrippa gets the point, and it shows. And uh, 
a little point here. As far as I understand that Agrippa was brought up in the court of the Emperor Claudius. And his mother took an intense interest in the Jews. Fascinating. Of course, the Herods had all kinds of connections. And they weren't true Jews. And they were, they, there's a whole story behind all of that. And, and some of that kind of comes out here. But verse 29, Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So he emphasizes that he was a prisoner. Unjustly so. And his longing was that they might all become Christians. He was a man convinced. He showed his heart. He had a heart to see people brought to a faith, a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, I know know it's the joy, it would be the joy of many here. That is our desire. We want to see men and women uh, coming to a true faith in this living Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that he'd done nothing wrong. This is a beautiful way of expressing it. Paul continues his mission before our eyes as his review of his past message becomes present proclamation, ending with a missionary appeal to King Agrippa. Isn't that wonderful? Now this gospel, that God became flesh and blood and bone in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this one lived in perfect, sinless interaction with other human beings, which is a remarkable thing. That he should go to the cross and suffer and die. That he should really be raised from the grave. This gospel, as far as Paul was concerned, it was credible. And it still is. As far as Paul was concerned, it was accessible to high and low. It still is. As far as Paul was concerned, it is personal for the king himself, for Festus, for anyone listening in the room. It still is. It was powerful. And it still is. Now let me just... just point out something, I referred to it earlier, but I'll just paint it a little bit sharper. This king, Agrippa II, his grandfather, had tried to murder the infant Jesus. His great uncle um, had killed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and was a virtual co-conspirator in the death of Jesus himself. His father killed the Apostle James. And here the Gospel is brought to him with both challenge and opportunity. I think that's remarkable. This is the grace of God. Wherever Paul was, he was a blessing to those around him. Wherever, whenever, However, it was a blessing. And that's something to aspire to in our own small, personal, circumstantial ways. To be people who have a sense of energy 
about the gospel we believe in. We've nothing to be ashamed of. We've nothing to be afraid of. Paul knew that the king knew his subject well. Paul knew, well, let me just pause there. You as a Christian, particularly if you've been on the Christian life a long time, do you know your subject well? Can you give a rational defense? I'm not saying you have to be an expert and answer every question, not at all. But can you give a rational defense, an account of yourself as a Christian? The king knew his subject well. Paul knew that they knew him. Now this is interesting. It is one of the sadnesses to me in, in a way because I moved from Belfast to England in the 70s and became a Christian then. It's, it's a bit of a sadness to me that my lots of my friends didn't see the change that the Lord Jesus brought in my life. I'm not talking about anything spectacular. I'm just talking about a complete change. I'll give you an example. So... My best friend, and I moved to Leeds to become a Christian, I wrote him a letter, and he was supposed to be coming to visit me. And I said, look, you'll have to make a lot of changes to our plans. We planned a variety of things. I said, I've become a Christian. And he knew what that was. Never answered my letter. Never heard from him again. But you see, Paul knew that they knew what a change you've brought. Now, other people who know the changes the Lord has brought in you, maybe the, there are a lot of people you know they have only knew and known you as a Christian. But it's a wonderful thing when people can see the change that he's brought. Maybe there are. Paul was happy to tell such good news. He was pleased to do it. Are we pleased to share the gospel? I sometimes get frustrated because I'm desperate to share the gospel with people. And you, you can't always do it as openly as this. Paul was sure of his ground. Are you sure of your ground? Not confident in yourself, I don't mean that. But sure of your ground. Now I love this statement. Christianity is neither secret nor subversive. Christianity is not in an inconspicuous event any longer, but a factor in world history. And Christians are preparing themselves to step out of their corner into the world of history culture. We can step out because we can be confident in our Saviour. So Paul's personal challenge you see to Agrippa, God gets personal in the Gospel. You know that if you're a Christian. Now if you're a person seeking God there is plenty to go at. It is possible that one of the reasons that Luke, who was a great associate of Paul and wrote Luke's Gospel, he continued the story with, with Acts. One of the reasons he possibly wrote this was to demonstrate to the Roman Empire where the, the book would be in circulation and it looks as though it could have even gone to some significantly high people, that Christianity was not an illegal religion. Big thing in the Roman Empire. They have their illegal religions and their legal religions. There's a, there's a kind of a defensiveness even in the production of the Book of Acts, although it's got many other purposes. But if you need clarity about this, it's all there. 
It can point you back to the gospel story. It can take you into Paul's letters. It's a kind of a linchpin is, is at between the two. Uh, uh, and it's wonderfully rich. So there's plenty to go on. And if you are that person this morning who's seeking the truth, please, go to it. If a conversation would help this morning, let's talk. But also, those of us who are Christians, if we are clear, let us show conviction and commitment and courage as we stand up for our Saviour. So Paul was a happy apologist. May the Lord make us happy apologists. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful record of your servant before these people with power and influence, and yet people who were probably ruthless to you. We thank you for the impact that your servant made. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the, the great certainty of the Lord Jesus risen from the dead. It is our hope. It is with uh, with great thankfulness that we even remember it. And we ask you to bless to us this passage from your word. Stir us up, Lord, in serving this Saviour with, with energy and with conviction and with, with sincerity and with respect for others. Lord, teach us how to be good, faithful servants and witnesses for you in these days, at this time in which we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.